Father, we ask as we open up our Bibles now that you'd open up our hearts and our minds and that you would make us attentive to your voice. And we pray, oh God, that your voice would be louder and more powerful and more defining and shaping for us than all of the other voices around us. We pray, oh God, that you would fill us afresh with hope and with courage and with joy and with gratitude. And we ask that you would do this in our hearts now through the power of your Holy Spirit and in the name of your son, Jesus. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. So we are now 10 days on from an election. And I'm no prophet or the son of a prophet. But, you know, despite uh, the dire predictions, I do believe that uh, coming up, in spite of the dire predictions and in spite of the firearm purchases that were up this year, 80% over last year. Some of you might know somebody like I do who I walked in and they said, Josh, I got a gun. I said, really? And they said, yeah, they were all sold out at the store. So I had to get an AR-47. And they're not alone. There were many AR-47s that were sold this year. But despite that, and despite the armed extremist groups on the left and on the right, and despite the fact that during COVID, Americans have spent way too much time consuming vast quantities of propaganda and conspiracy theories and disinformation, and despite the fact that 2020 is so bizarre and just about anything can happen, despite all of that, I predict that at the end of January, we will see a peaceful transition into a new presidency. (laughs) Now, the fact that some of you might debate that claim and could actually provide powerful and convincing counter-arguments to that claim reveals just how toxic and how fraught and how politicized and how polarized the season that we all have been walking together through has really been, hasn't it? Now, I know that polarization and political divisions are nothing new, but it does seem like, especially in the last few years and especially in the last few months, that it has reached new levels and it is breeding the idea among many of us that those who are for the other party are at best misguided and at worst, they are enemies and traitors. One study I read this week said that 60% of voters think members of the other party constitute a threat to America. 60%, 40% would call them evil, and 20% think they're animals. One academic doing research in this area concluded, quote, hostility to the opposition party and its candidates has now reached a level where loathing motivates voters more than loyalty. Anger has become the primary tool for motivating voters. You know, I was reading uh, uh, an article from the Gallup organization this last week, and it noted that while polarization oftentimes is harmful, it's difficult for many of us, they did say that sometimes it can have positive effects and outcomes. And they note a few of these for us. First, they said, partisan us versus them perspectives are easier for many individuals to handle cognitively than our complex approaches to issues and situations that attempt to take into account multiple pluses and minuses. So they say, look, at least the positive is this. When we polarize things and we divide up the world into us and them, it just makes it easier on us cognitively. 
They said, second, of course, politicians gain support and maximize turnout when their constituents can be emotionally activated on the basis of perceived threats coming from the opposite party. And then thirdly, and most importantly, it says, uh, there are real economic benefits for businesses that can take advantage of and monetize the behaviors of emotionally driven partisans seeking reinforcement for their views. Among these beneficiaries, cable news networks, talk show hosts, book publishers, bloggers, and podcast producers. And listen, while politicians and cable news broadcasters and business has benefited from the polarization around us and all of the political divisions, in my experience, it has been incredibly harmful to God's church. You know, I've been in ministry for some 20 plus years, and I have never seen so much division inside the church as I have experienced over the last few months. And it's not just a problem I've observed, it's also a problem that unfortunately, because I'm not just a saint, I'm also a sinner, it's also a problem I have contributed to. I've had the experience, and I know it well, of having somebody across from me say something that I find to be absolutely outlandish and ridiculous. And they say it once, and I, can, I have the self-control enough to say nothing. But when they say it twice, that's when it gets me going. And it triggers me, and I have to assert my own opinions about things I know very little about, but I can say them with such confidence and such anger and disgust. And then the conversation ends, and we didn't actually communicate. And then I withdraw from them. I say, we can't talk. I don't want to be around them. I don't like them. And I know I'm not alone. All of this is happening among our neighbors. It's happening in many of your families, and it's happening in our churches. You know, th this, this is just tearing us apart. And so the question that I want to ask today is how is it that we as God's people can do what the text of Scripture calls us to do that we read today? How can we truly let the peace of Christ dwell among us? In other words, how can we, in the midst of a divided and polarized world, how can we be agents of peace and reconciliation? How can we be peacemakers in a world that is so divided? How can we as a church be united in a world that is so divided? And to kind of explore that question, I want to just pull apart this little verse that we read tonight. And I want to uh, just to draw your attention to three little phrases in this verse and just make a couple observations or make three observations from these phrases. The first phrase I want to draw to your attention to is that simple phrase, the peace of Christ. He says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. What should rule in our hearts? He says, it is the peace of Christ. But what is the peace of Christ? You know, so often we think of this as that interior peace that quells the anxiety and worry within. And how many of us need that peace and that freedom from inner anxiety? And of course, that is promised to us in Scripture, that kind of peace. But I don't think that's the peace he's talking about here in this text. Because in the second half of the verse, he talks about you were called in one body. In other words, this is a peace that is to work itself out in the midst of our life together. And it is the peace of Christ. You know, when he refers here to the peace of Christ, his early readers would have set that in contrast to another peace they heard a lot about in their world in Rome. 
and that was the peace of Rome, the well-known Pax Romana, the Roman peace. And here he contrasts the Pax Romana, which was created and it was maintained through oppressive violence by the Roman government. It was maintained and created through the sword of Caesar. Here he contrasts that with the peace of Christ, which he says was created earlier in this book. He says it was created through the blood that Christ shed on the cross. In other words, this is a peace that has been created and is maintained not through oppressive violence, but through gracious, self-giving, cross-shaped love. The, 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 the peace of Christ is not a peace that is won and maintained through the sword. It is the peace that is brought about and maintained through the cross of Jesus Christ. And what he says all throughout the New Testament is that this peace Christ has brought between humanity and God has come through God's own generous, glad self-giving on the cross. It is the gracious, forgiving, healing love of God that bridges the gap between our broken humanity and our holy God. Christ's cross-shaped love is what bridges that divide and can heal our broken relationship with God. But get this, what he wants us to see is that the peace of Christ not only creates and sustains a peace and a healing and a reconciled love with God, this peace of Christ also creates new relationships among us. In other words, when we receive and we enact this same generous, gracious, cross-shaped, sin-bearing love in our life together, we create peace if, 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 and this is the big if, if we let it. Because the second phrase I want you to notice in the text is this. He says, let the peace rule of Christ rule in your hearts. In other words, this is something we need to allow to happen among us. We need to allow the cross-shaped, healing, reconciling love of God to work itself out in our life together. And notice how he, how he describes how this works itself out in our life. He says, let it rule in your hearts. And this word rule was taken from the world of sports, and it was used to describe how an umpire might rule in a game. Uh, the umpire or the ref calls the game. They call the shots. They determine the outcome. And here he says the reconciling cross-shaped love of God ought to determine the outcome of how you treat other people. You know, a few years back, our, our family watched that fantastic Pixar movie, Inside Out. It's one of the best. And in, this, and in the story, you know, it's this. Uh, if you haven't seen it, you have to go home and rent it this weekend. It's fantastic. But it, it gives the interior life of a little girl who's having a difficult time with a move. And you get a look at her inner world through these little emotions that she has that are personified inside of her as, as, as joy, sadness, fear, and anger. And the question is, is who is going to control her behavior? Is it going to be fear? Is it going to be anger? Is it going to be sadness? Or is it going to be happiness? Who is going to control her, how she treats other people, how she responds? And I think what Paul is asking us to consider is who determines and what determines how you interact with and how you treat others' people? What has the deciding factor in your own life? Is it your hurts? 
Does how they hurt you, does it determine, is that the final arbiter in how you treat others? Is it your need to be right and to prove that you're right? Is that the determining arbiter of how you interact with and treat other people? Is it your political ideology and your political, is that what's most, is that what determines how you treat, how you view, how you interact with others? What, what he is calling us to do here is to allow the peace of Christ, to have Christ be the one who is the, the arbiter, the determiner of how we treat other people. He says, let this peace rule in your hearts. And then the final phrase I want to draw to your attention is the last one. He says, let the peace rule of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body. He says, you were called into one body. Why should, you, why should we work together to receive experience and enact and embody the healing cross-shaped love of Christ among us? Why should Jesus's work on the cross be the arbiter and the final determiner of how we live together, how we interact together? Well, Paul says here, it is because to this you were called into one body. He says, we have been called together into one body in Christ. You have a new king and you have been brought into a new kingdom. You are a part of a new family. You are part of a new community and it is multi-ethnic. It's multicultural. It is global. It's all, we have been brought into a new family. This is our primary identity to be part of this broad global community of Jesus followers. And so he says, look, you have been brought. Notice what he says. Here's the basis for our unity. You have all been brought together in one political party. That is what unites us together. Amen? Amen. You're wrong. No. Well, Jesus is Lord. I guess that's our, if that's our political party. I was just seeing if you were listening. Listen, the basis of our unity is not that we've been brought in one political party the same political party or have the same opinions and ideas about COVID-19. We, almost none of us have the precise ideas and opinions about COVID-19, do we? And the government response to it and what Governor Newsom should be doing and what he shouldn't be doing. And uh, we won't go there. And we've got opinions about racial reconciliation and about whether or not racism is systemic or it's personal or whatever. There's, there's different opinions that exist among us. But notice we have not been called into a community of, homo of homogeneity. We are not brought into a family where everyone has the same ideology, the same political beliefs, the same thinking about every issue. Instead, you have been brought into a new community that is united by Jesus Christ and by his work on the cross. Jesus is what brings us together. You know, when I was uh, reading this verse, he talks about us being called into one body. And what reminded me, what it reminded me of is in those, in those opening chapters of the gospel where Jesus calls his first disciples into one body. And what's fascinating is the community that he calls them into are an incredibly politically diverse community. In the, the, original, the original 12, there was so much diversity. On the one hand, there was Simon the Zealot. Do you know what a zealot is? 
It is essentially a, it, it, was a, it was like a religious fundamentalist who was willing to resort to violence in order to overthrow the government. So the zealots did not like Rome. They wanted to take up arms against Rome. They were stockpiling their AR-47s and whatnot. They were a part of the militia groups. And then on the other end of the political spectrum was Matthew, the tax collector. He wasn't taking up arms against Rome. He was in bed with the Roman government, enriching himself as a result of it. And then, of course, there was Peter, James, and John, who were just, they were blue-collar fishermen who were simply trying to get by, and they, their lives were being made worse because of the extremists on both sides. And they were all brought together in one family. Now, question class, do you think that the day they started following Jesus, they all of a sudden all lined up in the proper role of the Roman government in society? Do you think they did? Of course not. Three years on, Jesus is still saying, no, no, no. You guys know how the, how the, the Gentiles exercise leadership among you. It shall not be like that among you. You still don't understand. And it, look, if after three years of walking in the presence of Jesus, they still didn't get it, how do you think we're going to do? We're probably all going to have spaces where we need to learn and grow and mature and continue to have Jesus shape off the hard, rough edges in our life. So if, if you got everyone to agree with you on every point of where you're at right now, it would be a disaster for the rest of us, wouldn't it? Because you've got areas where you need to grow and we need each other. We need diversity. We need difference. We need uh, different uh, ideas and, and opinions and, and thinking and, and creative, imaginative uh, interaction between how Christ interacts with the world that we live in. So we need each other and you have been called into a diverse community of believers. So let's never let that diversity be reason to depart from each other in order to go to a homogenous community where everyone lines up where you do with COVID and with race and with politics and with, look, that's not the basis of our unity. The basis of our unity is the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And the, the basis of our unity is that we're all broken sinners in need of the gracious healing love of God. Like, this is what unites us together. Now, in light of all of this, in light of the peace of Christ that is to govern us and, 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 and grounded in this reality that we've been called together in one family, I just want to close this evening with three simple points of application, three ways in which you and I can practice this peace in how we interact together. Three things that we must do in this politically divided, polarized culture. Three ways in which we need to be completely countercultural. And number one, here's what we need to do we must banish any and all contempt from our hearts. We need to banish any and all contempt from our hearts. Earlier, Paul put it like this in verse 6. He says, and now you must put them all away. You must banish all of this. Anger, rage, malice, contempt. Anybody hear anger, rage, malice, and contempt over the last few months from anybody, either let's say on Facebook or in a podcast or one of the talking heads or on news stations? Anybody heard uh, contempt or anger coming out of anybody's mouth? Anybody seen that coming out of your mouth? out of your hearts. Please tell me I'm not alone. 
Listen, when he says put away anger, I think what he's getting at is he's getting at what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. Remember what Jesus said? He said, you have heard that it was said of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders shall be liable to the judgment. But Jesus said, I say to you, whoever is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the council. And whoever says, raka, or you idiot, will be liable, will, will be in danger of the hell of fire. In other words, when we call someone an idiot or stupid or raka or racist or Marxist, we're making a judgment not just on what they say or do, but who they are and what worth or dignity or value they do or do not have. And that is what contempt is. And don't try to write it off as I was being, I had righteous anger. You, maybe you did, but it's almost certainly the case that you didn't. It's almost certainly the case that your anger was infused with something that went into the arena of sin. John Mark Comer puts it like this. He's a pastor. I was listening to a sermon of his this week, but he put it like this. And here's his definition of contempt. And I, I, know, I, I, I know this definition in my own experience. He says this, contempt is when you take one part of a person, their political views or what they said or did or tweeted or texted, and you make it the whole of them. You take one part of them and you make it the whole of them. And then you let that one part define who they are. And then with that, you demonize and demean them. And then you lower them in your moral and your intellectual estimation. And in so doing, you elevate yourself so that you can enjoy that sweet, delicious feeling of moral superiority. Wow where you think yourself as intellectually or culturally or morally or spiritually better than them, and you say, Raka, you fool, or what an idiot. How could anybody think that way? What's wrong with them? And Jesus says, you got to root that out of your heart. you got to banish that. That has no place in our own hearts and lives. And friends, you and I, we have got to be serious with ourselves. We have got to be serious with one another when you hear your brothers and sisters talking in such a contemptuous, demeaning way, it is so easy to jump on board with it. It is so easy to get enraged by it. But you need to banish it. I need to banish it. We need to excise this thing from our hearts. This, is, this, this could be the very root of our very problem in our nation right now. It's because we're not walking in the way of Jesus and banishing this kind of contempt and hatred from our hearts. So number one, we need to banish all, any and all contempt. But secondly, we need to practice enemy love. We need to practice enemy love, or as uh, Paul puts it early in our text, he says, put on love. Put on love. And of course, the love that he's talking about there is not simply a love for people who are just like you, right? I mean, it's easy to love people who are just like you, who think like you, who talk like you, who dress like you, who act like you. I, I shouldn't say it's easy. It's even difficult to love those people, isn't it? But it's, a, it's, it's, it's worlds more difficult to love people who are different from you or people who you don't like. But Jesus says the kind of love I'm calling you to is an enemy love. 
He said, you have heard it said of old, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Listen, the real measure of Christian maturity, the real measure of whether or not you are growing in your faith in Jesus, the real litmus test for maturity, it's not our Bible knowledge. It's not our theology. The real litmus test is do you love people who are not like you? For Jesus in the kingdom, this is the litmus test. This is the standard of maturity. It's how well do you love your enemies? John Tyson, in his book, Beautiful Resistance, put it like this. He says, quote, given the role of the media today, the polarization of our politics, and the presence of a 24-hour income-producing news cycle, we are told who is deplorable and who is worthy of respect. We are told who our enemies are and why they present a savage threat to us. Things are not presented to us in a fair, nuanced, or civil way. Hate is being cultivated one social media post at a time. Each 15-second soundbite or meme is training, is training us to release our hate on our enemies. So how are you doing in moving towards people with grace and humility and forgiveness and kindness and understanding, thinking the best believing the best of somebody, not believing the worst of them. I don't know if you found this to be true, but when it comes to myself and when somebody questions my motives, I'm always like, look, can't you just think the best of me and my motives? And of course, I usually give myself the benefit of the doubt, don't you? I mean, not me. You don't give me the benefit of the doubt. Well, some of you do, and I love you. But, you know, don't you do this. You are so generous in your view of yourself oftentimes. But we're very stingy in our view towards others. We have so much understanding, so much compassion, so much grace for how we might have phrased something, how we might have tw texted something or tweeted something. Or, 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 and, and yet, in how we view other people, we can view them with such a stingy, critical outlook. And what he's calling us to do is actually those people who are not like you, who are different from you, who vote different from you, who've got radically different opinions than you. What we're called to is actually to move toward those people with love. And one of the things you can do if you are loving somebody well is you can try to understand them before you make yourself understood by them. You can actually move toward them with humility and with a, a gracious posture. Now, I, I, I know I'm saying this kind of strongly to you all, but I want you to know that I am sitting with you right now. I need to hear this every bit as much as you all. Like, I am, I'm a sinner in need of grace. And so we are called, number one, to banish any and all contempt from our hearts. Number two, we need to put on love and practice enemy love. But thirdly and finally, we need to learn how to pass the peace. Pass the peace. You know, in... A lot of liturgical church traditions, they have a practice. And some of you, if you grew up maybe in an Anglican church or a Methodist church, there's a space in the service where you are invited to pass the peace. And usually what you do is you stand up and you turn to somebody and you say, the peace of Christ be with you. 
And they look at you and they say, and also with you, peace of Christ be with you, and also with you, peace of Christ be with you, and also with you. And you pass the peace. I remember the first time I heard that uh, in, in a church, I thought, did he just say pass the peace? You know? And you think, isn't that something that Uncle Leroy asked me to do at, at Thanksgiving dinner, you know, and um, pass the peace? No. But I, I, will, I will say, sometimes crazy Uncle Leroy needs you to pass the peace to him. Do you have crazy Uncle Leroy at your Thanksgiving dinner table this year? Some of you are thinking right now the one benefit of COVID this year. <laughs> I've been skirting, you know, those harsh uh, Newsonian um, restrictions. But this year for Thanksgiving, I'm going to practice it to the T. Sorry, Aunt and Uncle, you can't come over this week, this year. The governor said. Sorry. Here's what I want to say. The, the theology behind this very simple practice of saying the peace of Christ be with you is... It's typically done before you go to the Lord's table. And the idea is, is if you have some unreconciled place in your heart and life, some hard feeling that you are harboring, some bitterness, some hurt that you are harboring toward somebody who was a friend, maybe a child, maybe a parent, uh, maybe a neighbor, maybe somebody in the church, that you actually deal with that in your heart and you extend peace to those people. In other words, the same gracious, healing peace that you have received through the love of God in Jesus Christ. You say, look, that same grace that I need, that I have received, they need, and I need to give to them. And so you pass the peace to them. And if we're gonna become a community of reconciliation, a community of peace. We have got to be those people who do the work of reconciliation, who reach out to people who have hurt us or who we have been hurt by, and we say, look, can we get together? Can we talk? We need to make things right. And when you move toward them, you move toward them not with wanting to rub in their nose how they hurt you. You move toward them with the same grace and the forgiveness that you have received from God because it's likely the case that even if you don't see it, you need some grace in your life from them because you may have hurt them in ways you don't even realize. And so we need to be a, a people that banishes contempt from our hearts. We need to practice enemy love and we need to pass the peace. You know, we're gonna end our time together by sharing in the Lord's Supper. And so at this time, I wanna just invite you to take out the little... Uh, bread and cup that you received, that little plastic cup. And I'm going to invite our band to come up. And I just want to invite you, as the band begins to sing this next part in our song, that you would use this space to ask God the simple question, God, who do I need to extend your gracious, healing, forgiving love to? God, who do I need to reconcile with? And just pause before God's face and ask him to speak to you. And then ask that God would enable you to do that work this week.
and then come to the Lord's table and receive the bread and the cup where you are reminded once again that you have been a recipient of God's cross-shaped love. Let's pray together. The band's going to sing over us. Then I'll come back up and I'll lead us in partaking together. Let's pray now. Father, we ask together for your grace that we would be a people who are self-aware. God, that you would also make us a people who are willing to extend the same grace to others that we demand for ourselves. God, we pray that you would help us with that son or daughter, or maybe with that parent that, that we have just not been speaking to. God, help us to move toward them with your love. And we ask this in the name of your son, Jesus, who is our peace, who himself has broken down all of the barriers of division and who has made us into one new humanity. Amen.